if you have downloaded our church app to whip out your phone, because on it, you can pull up the scripture, follow along when the scripture text is gone off the screen, you can reference back to it. And there's also a, an icon, a notes section that you might find helpful. You can open that up and you'll see there's places where you can type yourself a few notes or reminders. And then at the end of the service, when you're done, you can click send and it will email it to yourself. So if you have been used to writing notes on your bulletin and then you completely lose your bulletin, this will help you remember what it was you wanted to think about a little bit more um, during the week. So it is perfectly as Doug said last week, socially acceptable to pull out your phone because I'm going to trust that you're reading scripture or taking really good notes. <clears throat> now we start a new sermon series today that will last the next six weeks. And this summer, we thought we would take a little bit of time to explore the first part of the book of Revelation. Uh, we're going to look at specifically the seven letters to the seven churches. And our hope is that as we see what Jesus had to say to the churches back then, we might also gain a bit of insight into what Jesus might be saying to us and our church today. And I think you will see the time-worn relevancy of God's word in this. Now, in order to get us oriented to what we're going to be hearing for the next couple of weeks, I want to read some extra scripture to you that I think will be helpful. So I'm going to read some verses from chapter 1, verses 1 through 6 and 9 through 11, in order to set the scene. And so here we go. A revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Christ made it known by sending it through his angel to his servant, John who bore witness to the word of God and to the witness of Jesus Christ, including all that John saw. Favored is the one who reads the words of this prophecy out loud, and favored are those who listen to it being read, and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, and this is the greeting essentially, grace and peace to you from the one who is and was and is coming, and from the seven spirits that are before God's throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn among the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to the one who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, who made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and always. Amen. I, John, your brother, who shares with you in the hardship, kingdom, and endurance that we have in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and my witness about Jesus. I was in a spirit-inspired trance on the Lord's day. Okay, he was like in a trance on Sunday, uh, like y'all are in worship, right? And I heard behind me a loud voice that sounded like a trumpet. It said, write down on a scroll whatever you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So let me stop right there, <clears throat> give you a few highlights to kind of set our Revelation foundation. Uh, I think this will help us absorb more fully what Christ is trying to reveal to the churches. 
So first of all, let's be clear, this revelation in the book of Revelation is from Jesus Christ. He is the one painting the fantastic picture that John is seeing and sending the messages, in our case, to these seven churches. Now, who is John, right? Is he Apostle John that we know of from the original 12 disciples, uh, which is what is historically was believed to be true? Or is it simply a prophet from Asia named John? So early Christians did think that he was the son of Zebedee and one of the 12 apostles, but this appears to actually not be the case anymore with a bit more historical study. He self-addresses himself as just a servant of God. He doesn't identify as one of the disciples or apostles. And he places himself as one of those who is suffering from what this book is trying to address. So with the date of authorship around 95 AD, it just wouldn't be possible for this to be the Apostle John to have written this text in that particular year. Now, Revelation is considered apocalyptic literature. And that means that it involves visions of a persecuted minority that's facing like this wicked, evil enemy. And it talks about using these cosmic uh, interventions. And, and uh, you know, it's the classic good versus evil right? Good versus evil, but it does use this bizarre imagery and often has a kind of cosmic heavenly scenes or both. And we're not going to see much of that in these first couple of chapters in Revelation. Most of that happens after, uh, later in the book. It is often both past-oriented and future-oriented, talking in both um, directions. But the most important characteristic, the most important characteristic of apocalyptic literature is that God always wins. Now, two other things you may have noticed that is uh, from this beginning of Revelation. Uh, it talks about this letter is best to be read aloud and heard to get its full benefit. Because hearing the imagery and imagining what you're seeing is far more powerful than studying every detail and symbol and trying to understand and interpret what it means. And finally, for our series and for Christ's revelation to these churches, it's made clear that Christ is present and walking among the churches. It's as if Christ stands as both judge, but also comforter. To, uh, to these communities of faith. So what might that mean if we thought of Christ as both our judge and our comforter? And how might that affect and hold us accountable to our actions and decisions as a church? With that in mind, let's hear our text for this morning from Revelation 2, 1 through 7. Write this to the angel of the church in Ephesus. <clears throat> <coughs> These are the words of the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance. I also know that you don't put up with those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles but are not, and you have found them to be liars. You have shown endurance and put up with a lot for my name's sake, and you haven't gotten tired. But I have this against you. You have let go of the love you had at first. So remember the high point from which you have fallen. Change your hearts and lives and do the things you did at first. If you don't, I'm coming to you 
I will move your lampstand from its place if you don't change your hearts and lives. But you have this in your favor. You hate what the Nicolaitans are doing, which I also hate. If you can hear, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. I will allow those who emerge victorious to eat from the tree of life, which is in God's paradise. This is the word of God for all God's people. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Open our ears, O Lord, to hear your word and know your voice. Speak to our hearts and strengthen our wills that we may serve you today, now, and always. Amen. You've lost that love and feeling. Whoa, that love and feeling. You've lost that love and feeling. Now it's gone, gone, gone. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So, I'm not singing any more of that. <laughs> that just might sum up what has happened to the church at Ephesus, right? That that's the heart of what Jesus is trying to say to them. So keep that in mind as we talk through this revelation, this, this letter, this call, this imploring of the church to rekindle their first love. Now, let's take a closer look. Um, I want to go back to slide number two and look at the map of the churches that... Um, uh, John is writing to. Ephesus is our first church, which is uh, number one on that map. And you'll see that John is writing from Patmos, which is the island that's about um, 37 miles southwest of Ephesus. Now, there is um, no evidence, actually, that this was a, a colony for prisoners or um, but, but he probably got in trouble for his teaching in Revelation and was just banished from his home community and then had to move here. But what is real interesting about the seven churches that we're going to hear about is they are all um, on a main highway, a main Roman highway uh, that goes through what is modern-day Turkey. Uh, but back then it was called the uh, uh, province of Roman province of Asia. And that's why you'll keep hearing the word Asia, but it really is modern-day Turkey. Um, all of these are urban cities, and they were happening places. And Christ has a distinct message for each one of these churches. So Ephesus might be the only one of those that sounds, uh, well, Philadelphia would be f familiar. But Ephesus is one of those that is familiar. Why is it familiar? It's familiar because it was the hub of Paul's ministry. It was the center of the early Christian church. And Paul spent several years starting the church there. He wrote letters from that church. Then he wrote a letter to that church, Ephesians, um, in our New Testament to encourage this anchor church. It was also a diverse community. There were Jews, there were Pauline Christians, there were disciples of John the Baptist, and then there were folks who worshipped some of the Greek gods. Uh, and this will be important when we look to see what Jesus actually says to them. 
So as we get started looking at this letter, it might be helpful to also point out there's actually a formula that each of these letters to the churches follows. And I think when we get that formula in our mind, it will help us to understand each letter um, a little more uh, deeply and even quickly. So each letter starts with a framing reminder. It sets up the letter and it connects whatever the word is that Jesus is getting ready to tell John to say to this church, connects it back to a descriptor of Jesus Christ. And so that's always interesting to see what those connections look like with each city. And then there comes a uh, commendation, and that a boy that says, uh, offers a word of encouragement. Uh, but after that word of encouragement, then comes a chastisement. It names something that's amiss about that community. Sometimes you're gonna see they're super harsh. Sometimes they're mild. And that is followed up with a challenge that provides some kind of correction or a warning in order for the church to, to take seriously, because if not, then there's going to be some consequences. And Christ is seriously trying to recalibrate the church. Because you see, these churches have existed now for several years, and uh, the longer that time frame is from that moment of their birth, the more opportunity that us humans have to move the church further and further away from that original Pentecost Acts to birth of the church community. And that is something for us to be mindful of today. I think that's why these letters speak to us today because we as humans are um, grace-filled and sinful. And so we can take what is meant to be a perfect thing and unfortunately make the church imperfect. So what is Jesus saying to that church at Ephesus? The framing reminder has a tinge of that revelation imagery that I was talking about, because it talks about in verse one, the one who is holding the seven stars in his right hand. What in the world does that mean? Was well, actually a little, little um, astrology smackdown um, that Christ is basically uh, establishing that the stars, they do not have control over our destiny and our lives, and that Christ is in fact the cosmic ruler who has control of the cosmos by simply holding those stars in his hand. Now, the golden lampstands represent the seven churches that Jesus is walking among, and it serves as a reminder that Jesus is very familiar with each of these churches and is present and paying attention. Now, the commendation for Ephesus is that they have shown endurance and they have worked hard. And not only that, they have also been faithful uh, to to not fall victim to false teachers in their community from all of the diversity of the faith practices that were in the city. They figured out how to hold their leaders accountable and remain faithful to true teaching. The chastisement is quite simple. They have, in fact, lost that loving feeling that they had at first. Christ wants them, so wants them to get it back. Which brings us to the challenge. It's a call to repent and a call to remember. To remember how they were at the beginning and rekindle that love. And if they don't remember and rekindle, then Christ will remove that light 
from its lampstand, the lampstand of their church. Now that's an interesting metaphor here that I want you to think about for just a, a minute. When we think about love in the biblical and Christian tradition, isn't that our best witness to our faithfulness of Jesus? Because Jesus said in the greatest commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and spirit, and love your neighbor. The Gospels teach us that to follow Jesus means to learn how to love fully. So if we are acting then in unloving ways, we're probably being a terrible witness to our faith in Jesus Christ. The idea of the church as a light in a lampstand is essentially reminding us that the church, we, the church, are a witness for all to see of God's kingdom coming today. So for God to remove that lampstand is to remove the poor witness that their or our lack of love of Christ is revealing. Now John then talks about a group of people called the Nicolaitans, which you may have been like, who are they? Um, and after doing some research, what I finally discovered is we don't exactly know what group of people they are referring to. The only connection that we can find is loosely there were a group of folks who condoned the Christian practice of participating in the, the festivals from all of the pagan cultural festivals and the sacrifices, and they encouraged the buying and, and eating of that sacrificial meat in the market. The point was, again, though, that the church of Ephesus might have lost their heart, but they had not lost their faithfulness to true worship of Jesus Christ. Now, we've reached the so what moment. You have listened through the kind of setup of Revelation and the framework of this particular first letter. What does this have to say to us today? This is some cool information about Revelation, but I hope one of the things that you've recognized is that this, this book doesn't have to be a big, scary, confusing book to be avoided at all costs, which some people um, feel that way. I did for quite a long time. I think the question that our text today raises for us to consider is, does our first love in Jesus Christ need to be rekindled? Because isn't that what they've lost? Wouldn't a church... Wouldn't a church's first love be their love of Jesus? And as someone in Pastor's Roundtable this week reminded us, marriage, the covenant of marriage takes a lot of work. And when we get married, it may be like a shiny chandelier. But with time, if you don't work on that relationship, if you don't invest in that relationship, the, the love for your spouse runs the risk of fading and the shiny chandelier gets dusty and without tending to and caring for the bulbs that go out might not get replaced and so the light can grow dim and so it is with the church their love for Jesus began to fade their love for one another began to fade little effort is put into the relationship with Jesus and before they knew it the love is lost. <clears throat> so today I want to invite you just to do two things. Find a commendation for either yourself or for our church and find a challenge. First, the challenge. 
Name in what ways your love for Jesus just may have faded a bit. In your own life, have you fallen from a high point of love and you need to find your way back to that first love that is lost? When I think back just two weeks ago with confirmation um, weekend and what the confirmands experienced by um, professing, becoming professing members here at the church, my heart is still warmed. And by the way, if you missed that worship, you missed something super significant and important here. There is nothing more powerful than hearing the testimony of those young people and seeing what Jesus has done in their life. Y'all, that is the best of the best of what the church is about. And next year, my hope that with a combined service of all of our folk, we are overflowing to the chapel because it is an amazing service to be able to be a part of. And I don't care if you don't have a confirmand or a connection at all to any of the folks joining. So powerful. And when I think back about those kids and what they experienced, it makes me wonder, how long has it been? How long has it been since I had that powerful experience? Since I was in touch with those feelings of Jesus' love for me and that excitement of my love for Jesus, how long has it been since you yourself have felt that excitement? And what about our church? Is there an original love that we have let slip that we need to reclaim? I can name one thing as I, well, I could probably name lots, but one thing came to my mind, like, not burdened me, but it was like, whoa, this may be an example of it. And it's simple. It's really simple. But at least here in our sanctuary services, we struggle finding enough ushers and enough greeters to serve each Sunday. How can a church our size struggle with this fairly easy um, volunteer commitment? And to remember how at first we were excited to serve the church as it needed us, and to recognize these important weekly tasks that help us to welcome and offer hospitality to anyone that comes to worship with us. Maybe we need to rekindle our servant's heart to help our current ushers and greeters who do an amazing job, but who are carrying uh, most of that responsibility. But maybe you can think of other ways that Jesus just might walk among our lampstand here at Boone UMC and say, remember the love you had at first for me? Secondly, what is something we celebrate? How are you witnessing your love for Jesus that you can name and celebrate? How is your love for God or your love for neighbor shining brightly for others to see? I celebrate this summer our love for children, for their well-being, and that light is shining brightly here at Boone UMC. Obviously, this week we have VBS where we will have hundreds of kids walking all over our church campus learning about God's love for them and inviting them to love God back. And then next week, 
We began for the first time ever here a summer literacy program in which a team of some of our amazing educators and servants have been working on for months with a grant from Duke Endowment and our own school system so that we can help rising first graders learn to read uh, even better. What a beautiful sign of love, uh, shining brightly for others to see. So I invite you to make your own list and to name what it is you want to celebrate. It's a challenge, but I kind of find it comforting that this text reminds us Jesus is ever-present in our church and that the encouragement and challenge Jesus provides for us to rekindle our lost love only makes us stronger. It only makes us better for God's kingdom. And ultimately, isn't that a good thing? Y'all, isn't that a good thing? Even if it requires a little bit of chastisement mixed in with a bit of commendation. So let's get our dusters out. Let's replace a few bulbs in the beautiful chandelier and shine so brightly, so brightly as a witness of our love for Jesus that others can't help but notice. And not only that, want to come and be a part of it. Is that a revelation? that our church today needs to hear, that can be spoken for our church, it absolutely is. And thanks be to God for it. Amen.